the the younger three of them are married. Okay. The younger three. That's the younger three. The yeah. oldest is a lesbian. Oh, okay. Who just gave us our grandson two months ago. Oh. She was artificially insane. Thank you. Yeah. So I've been involved in all various forms. What can I say? Yeah. Well, that also tells me a little bit about how you've become involved in the, the issue of homosexuality and Jewish right. tradition, that you have a stake in that as well. Yeah, although I got into that long before I knew that my, uh, long, long before really? our daughter came out to us. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's because I do a lot of bioethics, so I was, right. well, that's not how it started, actually. Do you want me to talk about that? I don't we, know. Mitch, are we on? We're rolling. Okay, yeah. Sure, go on. Yeah, let's do this, and we'll start. The good thing about these interviews is they're they're taped for later editing, and they don't have to be especially chronological. So, okay, okay. So we're talking about homosexuality. Yeah. The, um, uh, from for a very long time, I really thought that this is primarily a generational issue because um, I was a teenager in the late fifties. I was in college in the early sixties. The first, I, when I was a teenager, I didn't even know the word homosexual, and and the word gay meant joyous. Um, right. And um, remember that? Um, yeah, I know. Anyway, the, um, <laughs> and then um, in 1961, I was a freshman at Columbia, and we had this great books course, and one of the books was Plato's Symposium, in which he says that the best, the, the most intense relationship, the ideal relationship between uh, a master teacher and his student is, uh, is a homosexual sexual re- uh, relationship. So we tittered about that for two days, and then was on to the next book. Um, that's all I knew about homosexuality until 1973, uh, when I was already in Los Angeles, and a friend of mine, um, who a friend of mine from camp, who was a rabbi in Cleveland, called me and told me that a young man who had grown up in uh, his congregation um, and had been really very active um, in that congregation and in the youth group, and actually had been regional president of United Synagogue Youth in that region, um, had then gone for college to the joint program between Columbia and the Jewish Theological Seminary. And in the spring of 1973, his sophomore year, had come out as a gay man and felt really shunned by the seminary community there and uh, had transferred to UCLA. And so this rabbi wanted me to call him and meet with him just to say that the Jewish community still cared. Um, so I did, and all I knew was Leviticus, uh, which says that it's an abomination, it's an abomination mm-hmm. for males, at least, to, um, to have sex together. And, um, and he gave me an education. I mean, we must have talked for three hours or more um, about what it was like to be, on the one hand, a committed traditional Jew um, and at the same time a gay man. And, and I have to say that that was really the only time in all of my life, really, that, that I have felt uh, downright embarrassed by my tradition. Um, hmm. <clears throat> because, I, I mean, I've seen... Because, I mean, it was very clear that this was somebody who was uh, committed and sincere and and certainly, from what I could tell, at least as moral as any straight people I knew, um, and yet was condemned by the tradition simply for who he is. Um, and um, and I didn't know what to say to him. I, I, I truthfully was dumbfounded. And um, but that's how I learned about it. And that's, that was 1973. The next I even heard about this um, was in 1981. I, I do a lot of bioethics. And when the AIDS virus was identified, um, mm-hmm. I was on an AIDS task force at UCLA Medical Center um, to deal with all kinds of issues having to do with the ethics of. Um, 
of research on AIDS and of treating AIDS patients or for even ER doctors who come in and have to presume that anybody would be um, uh, affected with the AIDS virus and needle sticks and things in that order. Mm -hmm. And as a result, since AIDS in this country began largely as a gay disease, um, although now now there are more straight people who have it in this country than than gay people, um, and in Africa that was always the way it was, but still... At the beginning, it was largely a gay disease here, and so consequently, I came to know many more gay men and some lesbians along the way. Um, and so when the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards of the Conservative Movement um, came to discuss these issues in 1991 and 1992, um, uh, I had had much more experience with that community than I think almost anybody else around the table. And um, Even though you hadn't really had a lot of experience. No, not, not really a lot of experience. More, uh, relatively more. Relatively more. Uh-huh. That's right. Um, I in the in the late 1980s, the, I, I was actually a board member of the Jewish Response to AIDS. It was called Nechama, okay. which dealt with, with, which did all kinds of things from Project Chicken Soup, which created meals for gay for um, uh, AIDS sufferers and their families, mm-hmm. to um, retreats and to all kinds of other things having to do with um, gay people. So I mean, I did I did have at least some experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas I think most of my colleagues had had virtually none, and um, you know, and at the time, uh, and and so I mean, I was listening to uh, the discussions of uh, of that issue, and um, and it became became clear to me. Two things became clear to me. One was that um, even though the science was soft, and by the way, still is soft, on the science the on science the on, biology on, of on the etiology mm-hmm. of sexual orientation right. altogether. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, how is it that we become gay or lesbian? And um, and are those uh, well? The American Psychiatric Association said in 1973 that it's not a disease, and um, and in any case that uh, our sexual orientation is hardwired into us by age six, um, and it re- and it, uh, it if anything reinforced that position in 1992. So, um, and this was 1991-92 that we were talking, and it's a and, and so it was clear to me that um, that we we simply had to find a way around the, the verses in Leviticus because because um, no matter how you understand those verses, you have to. I mean, they are in the form of prohibitions, mm-hmm. um, but it makes no either legal sense or logical sense. Um, for let's say you wanted to do for some reason you wanted to everything that I asked you to do right and if and if I were to say to you I prohibit you from breathing for four hours <laughs> right that yeah. would I mean you probably understand the words but but in the context of a human being that makes no legal or logical sense and so Leviticus is clearly presuming that it's uh, that that people who that men who engage in gay sex are able not to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and of course, I mean any particular sex act. I mean, unless you have a gun at your head or something, is is not coerced. But um, but if you are indeed born gay, uh, then your choice under those circumstances is either complete celibacy for all your life, yeah. uh, or to engage in gay sex. And I, and I think celibacy was never something that the Jewish tradition prized. Um, right. Right. Quite the contrary. <laughs> at all. Uh-huh. Yeah, at all. Uh-huh. Quite the contrary. I mean. Starting with stories already in the Talmud, let alone in the Bible, yeah. um, you know everybody's supposed to get married. Um, yeah. And uh, there's one th- one story in the Talmud in which um, a man who is praised to uh, you know as being a great young 
um, genius uh, is brought to an older rabbi, and it's clear from his dress that he was not married, and so the older rabbi turns his back on him and says, come back to me when you're married. So, I mean, it's, it's very clear that the tradition does not think that, that we should be celibate all our lives. Mm-hmm. And so if you are born gay then you, and you really have no, you know, you, you have no other choice, then it seems to be both cruel and ultimately un-Jewish to, mm-hmm. um, to say to, to gays and lesbians that they should not have, they could not have legitimate sex. And were you then, did you then, uh, um, were you able to go back into your tradition and find ways to read scripture differently or to find an affirmation well what uh, the problem uh, with it uh, and as a matter of fact well, at the time the, um, the there was a, uh, a, a ruling that was on the table written by Rabbi Bradley Artson a colleague of mine at the University of Judaism um, that sought to do that um, on, on historical grounds, which namely his claim was based upon a very thick book by a man by the name of David Greenberg on the history of homosexuality. Um, Rabbi Arthur's claim was that um, the only kinds of gay sex that existed in the ancient world were either cultic, that is some kind of fertility rite or occultic thing to the god, um, as there was straight sex involved in, in mm-hmm. the cults of the ancient world, um, or uh, oppressive, master-slave kinds of things, uh, or um, promiscuous, and that okay. um, and that it's that loving monogamous homosexual sex only came into the world in the 19th century. So that the prohibition could only would have, only have been addressing those kinds of those abusive kinds of, that's right. sexual so, relationships. Exactly, that okay. was his argument, and that and that uh, that as a result, when we're talking about loving monogamous homosexual sex, that's a new. A phenomenon which we current rabbis ought to treat in the same way that we treat loving monogamous heterosexual sex, namely that we should sanctify it through some form of marriage or commitment ceremony or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but my position at the time was that the problem is that there are some historical sources, even in the Jewish tradition, which recognize that there were at least some things that look like um, loving monogamous sex. So I don't know whether the historical argument can really be sustained. Um, But in any case, I I said we know enough about homosexuals in our time who are beginning to come out of the closet and the like that um, that what they're engaging in is not as an intention to necessarily to rebel against the tradition, which is the way that the tradition saw it, um, but rather simply as an expression of who they are. And that minimally we have to say that it's not an abomination but beyond that, whatever we say um, to gays and we, rab- we conservative rabbis to gays and lesbians um, would rightfully fall on deaf ears because we had never said to straights what the Jewish tradition says to them about their sexual activity. What do you um, mean by that? What are you saying? So um, basically what I – in other words, we, had, we conservative rabbis have never, had never articulated um, what the thrust of the Jewish tradition would say to – um, to, to uh, heterosexual singles and, for that matter, marrieds about their sexual activity. Um, and so I propose that we create uh, a Commission on Human Sexuality which would talk about straight sex, as well, both in marriage and outside of marriage, as well as gay sex. Um, you know, I, I have this impression that there's much more of that talk in Jewish tradition than, I don't know, for example, there is in Christian tradition, real realistic talk about sexuality and there's well see the jewish tradition i mean it's it's what um um 
what's her name? Uh, Rebecca Chop. Chop. Yeah, that's right. What she was just talking about in terms of the difference between Christianity and Judaism on how the body is seen. The body yeah. in in Judaism is not seen negatively the way that it's seen in many Christian sources as the source of sin. Paul says, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in the Jewish tradition, um, first of all. God creates the human being, the entirety of the human being, and calls it not only good but very good mm-hmm. in the opening chapter of Genesis. And, um, and there's that evocative thing in the opening chapter of Genesis that men and women are created together, together. which is, is a right. different image than the one that's, I think, in the second very chapter. familiar to people of the Garden of Eden That's right. the woman from the rib. That's right. Right. But in any case... The, the, and, the, and when God creates us and calls us, calls the human being very good, that's not just the soul, as it were, that's the body as, as well. And so from the point of view of the Jewish tradition, the body, the emotions, the will, the mind, um, all of these things are, uh, are part of God's creation. Um, they are morally neutral, um, all of them, and uh, their their moral valence, as it were, depends upon how we use those things. So you can use your mind for good purposes or for ill. You can plot assassination attempts or something like that, right? And that would be a bad use of your mind, um, a morally bad use. And on the other hand, you can use it to try to help people, um, and that would be a morally good use. And the same sort of thing is true in terms of your desires, your will, and your emotions, and your body. And so what the tradition does is say that the body is morally neutral, and what defines its good use um, is what um, God gives us as a book of instruction. That's exactly what the word Torah means in, in Hebrew. It's a book of instruction. So God creates this neutral body and gives us a book of instruction as to how we're, we're to use our body. And so that, in um, and, and if you look at that book of instruction, um, it becomes clear that for the Jewish tradition, um, there are two purposes. Um, first of all, the, that, that, that God owns our bodies. Okay. In other words, God is, there, there are three partners, as the Talmud puts it, to the creation of each one of us, mother, father, and God. Um, but unlike our mother and father, God owns our bodies through our lifetime and on into our death. You know, if, if one took that seriously, that would really change the way yes. we thought about and, and used our bodies. Exactly right? right. Because what it's like is, I have this book called Matters of Life and Death, A Jewish Approach to Modern Medical Ethics, and in the first chapter, I talk about these fundamental underlying principles of Jewish medical ethics and do some comparisons to the American secular understanding of it. Um, in the American secular understanding of things, you own your body. Yeah. And therefore, you do with it whatever you want as long as you don't harm someone else. But in the Jewish tradition, God owns your body. So, mm-hmm. And you have it on trust from God. So it's as if you were renting an apartment. Um, first of all, you would not have the right negatively to destroy the apartment because that's not yours. Right, and the analogy is that you do not have the right to commit suicide in the Jewish tradition, because it's, right. it's not yours to destroy. Right. Whereas in all fifty states, suicide is not against the law. Assisting a suicide is against the law in every state except Oregon. But but suicide itself is not against the law. And you might say to yourself, Well, what could they do to you after you commit suicide? Right. But but they could. I mean, they could. Um, uh, they could make it so that you could not pass on your inheritance to your heirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could publicly shame you um, or, and your family after you had died. So, I mean, the state could do things if it wanted to prohibit suicide, but it doesn't, uh, whereas in the Jewish tradition that is prohibited. And then similarly, you have to take reasonable, you have to, you may not uh, un, you know, uh, cause damage.
damage to this apartment of yours that's, that belongs to God. And so, um, and so what, what does that mean? Well, it means that, well, you get modern rabbinic rulings against smoking um, hmm. and against alcohol abuse. We allow, unlike the Muslims, we allow the drinking of alcohol, but, but within moderation or against drug abuse. Um, or even against things like, um, well, my <clears throat> my own personal weakness is ice cream, and so if I wanted to, <laughs> that doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. You know, so if I wanted to have a half a gallon of ice cream, uh-huh. you know, every night of the week, and as long as we're doing it, it might as might as well be mint chocolate chip um, or cherry Garcia. But anyway, let's say I wanted to do that every night of the week. Uh, from a, an American point of view, that would be fine. You're free. I'm free, free to, to do, do it. That. I might yeah. be stupid because I yeah. gained 500 pounds in yeah. no time. But it's your life. But it's my life. Right. But in the Jewish tradition, I don't have that right. I've, I've got to take reasonable care of this body of mine that belongs to God. And so that then leads to the positive side of this. Rules about proper diet and exercise and hygiene and sleep in the American understanding of things are just there so for pragmatic reasons. In other words, so that you'll look good, you'll feel good, people will like you. I mean, those kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. You'll live a long life. Um, but, in the, uh, but, my, but in the Jewish tradition, it's very different. Maimonides, a 12th century rabbi who was also, was also a physician and a philosopher, um, actually puts it very starkly. He said, for those who take care of their bodies because um, they want to have children who will do their work for them, good luck. Um, and <laughs> right, and um, that's, not, that's not the proper mode. You should, um, you, should do, you, know, you should take care of your body so that you can be in a position to do the commandments and to mm. worship God. Mm. Because somebody who is sick has less ability to fulfill the commandments and, and to worship God. So you, you have to take care of this body of yours that, you know, that belongs to, uh, to God. Um, so that's, that's the first part of this. And then in terms of specifically the, the energies of the body, what the Jewish tradition is interested in doing is taking the various desires of the body and channeling them toward good purpose as and, defined by the Torah. And sexuality would be considered an energy that's of right. the body. That's okay. right, one, one of the energies of the mm-hmm. body. Sort of like your desire for food. Um, mm-hmm. what, the, what the Jewish tradition does with that is, first of all, the dietary laws as to uh, what you may eat in order to, to give you a sense of the, of, of the fact that the animal kingdom uh, and life even in the animal kingdom is something to be respected. Um, and, and then also it surrounds the meal with blessings, uh, blessing before bread before the mm. meal, and a longer set of blessings after the meal because Jews understood that at the beginning, you're not really focusing. It's at the end of the meal, once you're seder, that you can actually talk about God and things like that, and right. people will listen. Um, and and what, the, what the blessings do is that they take the animal act of eating and really transform it into uh, the, the setting for, some, for, for bespeaking some very deep Jewish values. Well, in, ta- in terms of sex, um, both in the stories at the beginning of Genesis and also in the laws of Judaism, it's clear that there are two purposes. Uh, for sex as the, as the tradition understood it. Um, in the first chapter of Genesis, you have be fruitful and multiply. Yeah. So clearly, procreation is one of the uh, purposes of marriage. And then in the second chapter of Genesis, you've got um, you know, uh, a man leaves his father and mother. It's not good for one to live alone, so a man leaves his father and mother. And cleaves liter- to and his cleaves wife. Cleaves to his yeah. wife. Literally sticks to his wife, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and... So the um, so the, clearly then the other purpose of sex within marriage is companionship. Right, is and the, you know I have spent a lot of time with Genesis over the years, and you know find it this inexhaustible source of insight and 
you know, just wonderful. But I noticed for the first time when I was getting ready to talk to you tonight that in the first chapter of Genesis, which is the which seems to be the more egalitarian story, mm. right? Man and woman are created together. Right. The emphasis is on procreation. Yes. It's be fruitful and multiply. In the second chapter, the second and third chapters, the Garden of Eden, which you know, feminists have interpreted as where the woman is subordinate and woman is taken from man's rib, which feels a bit insulting to women. Mm-hmm. The emphasis is on companionship. Right. And also, you know, that it's on companionship and then and they were naked and unashamed. Right. So there's something very liberated as well. Yes. Well, actually, the rabbis carry that on. I mean, they, they then take, there's the, that's on a theological level, right? And then on the, on the level of, on the legal level, um, you have the commandment to be fruitful and multiply, and then the other commandment that's relevant to us is in Exodus chapter 21, in which the Torah says that when a man takes his a wife, then her food, her clothing, and her conjugal rights, he may not diminish. Now, that's at least how the rabbis understood the word there in, in Exodus. As conjugal terms, rights. As conjugal which rights. Which means that women also have sexual needs. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which is, when you look at it in comparison to other ancient cultures, or for that matter, modern cultures, the presumption was that men have sexual desires, women do not. Women acquiesce to the sexual advances of their husbands because they want two things. They want children and they want economic security. And that's basically been the presumption of most cultures of the world, including American law until the 1970s, truthfully. But the Jewish tradition from the very beginning assumes hmm. that women have sexual desires just as much as men do, and that satisfying both the, the desires of sexual desires of men and of women is what marriage is all about, or at least one of the purposes of marriage, right? Um, yeah. In addition to procreation and the raising of children. Um, and so, and the rabbis as, do what they usually do with the commandments, namely, they then try to define the, the commandments. So, what, so what, how do they define it? Um, well, a man may never force himself upon a woman. Um, they, they understood marital rape, um, and, uh, and a man, uh, husband may never force himself upon his wife. Um, and, uh, but uh, how long, I mean, how often does he have to offer her to, you know, to have sex in order to satisfy her desires? Well, according to the Mishnah, it depends upon what he does for a living. So if he's home every night, then he has to offer to have sex with her every night. If he's a donkey driver and home every other night, then every other night. If he's a camel driver, home every third night, then every third night. And if, it's, and if he's a scholar, then once a week on Friday night on the Sabbath. Um, if he's a sailor, then once every six months. And if she married him and he was a sailor, then she understood at the time how often they would be having sex together. But if, if she married him and he uh, earned a living in some other way, then he could only become a sailor with her permission because he would thereby be diminishing her rights to sex within marriage. Huh. Um, and then conversely, um, a man may never force himself upon his wife. But let's say his wife refuses to have sex with him one night, two nights, three nights. How long may she refuse to have sex with him before his rights to sex uh, kick in? Well, first of all, you have to remember that in traditional Jewish law, uh, the couple was not supposed to have sex during the time of her menstrual flow, mm-hmm. and then for a few days thereafter to make sure that it was over. So what you're really talking about is roughly two to two and a half months out of every menstrual month. Um, two, two and a half, half weeks. weeks mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Two mm-hmm. to two and a half weeks after, uh, out of every menstrual month, they were allowed to have sex. So how long may she refuse to have sex with him before his rights to sex uh, kick in? And that's a dispute between the, the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. It's ultimately the laws according to the school of Hillel, which is two weeks. 
In other words, the entire menstrual month. Right. Um, and, and then what happens? Uh, well, then what happens is that he may begin to diminish the amount of money that he would have to pay her in a divorce settlement until ultimately he could divorce her without paying her anything and marry someone else. Huh. Because he also has rights to sex within marriage. So, right? theologically, or, or you know, <clears throat> what is the what is the the um, the rationale? Is it is it simply that that our sexuality is part of what it is to be human, and that there's an understanding that that needs to find expression? Right, and that marriage is the proper place. And that's in a which good it, thing. And that's, that's a very that's good the proper thing. place. That's it's a very good thing. It's mm-hmm. not right to remain alone. It's uh, it's not good for anybody to read. And hence, you get. I mean, a long, this is not just theoretical, a long history of, of matchmakers. <laughs> um, if you're, right. you're quoting Fiddler on the Roof, but, right? Yeah, but this is illuminating still to right. put it into that context. It's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's because, and, um, and I, you know, I remember that when I finished rabbinical school, if uh, we were told already in rabbinical school that if you weren't married by the time you finished, uh, the, at that time uh, it was only men that were being ordained, uh, the sisterhood would do absolutely everything in, in its power to get you married off within the first year that you were you know, serving a congregation, which is indeed true. Yeah. Um, and then I think uh, that 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 the structure of Jewish life also supports marriage, uh, particularly. I mean, just, even something like Sabbath, just having right. that downtime and that rest within the family. Yeah, that's one of the points that I, that I was making uh, at the conference. The the Sabbath is probably uh, the best antidote to American uh, workaholic, uh, f- the workaholic phenomenon in America mm-hmm. that I think has ever existed. Because effectively, what it what it does is that it says that um, from from sunset on Saturday, to, from sunset on Friday, actually a few about twenty minutes before, eighteen minutes officially before. Uh, sunset on Friday until about 40 minutes after sunset on Saturday, um, you may not work. And um, you do have, uh, on, on the contrary, obligations to be with family and friends and be part of, the, go, to, go to synagogue. And, um, and basically, it's one of the most important ways of renewing you know, family life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it was always important, but it's especially important when, you know, you get, you know, people are sort of eating breakfast on the run. They often don't have lunch yeah. together. Even dinner, I mean, many, many families, especially with teenagers, you know, don't, are not able to have together during the week because they all have these extracurricular activities and the like. Um, and unless, so that unless a family really, really plans it, consciously plans it. They very often don't have dinner together during the week, but even if they do, it's a 15, 20-minute affair. Um, whereas on the Sabbath, um, uh, it's designed to be a day in which hours. you... Yeah, 20, yeah, it's 24 hours yeah. in which you, um, you have a, an extended meal on, on Friday night and with singing around the table. And it begins with, um, with a blessing over wine and a blessing of the Sabbath. Uh, itself, and then the um, parent. Then there's a, an ode to um, it's, it's Proverbs chapter 31, and where the husband praises his wife, mm-hmm. um, and then the parents bless their children, um, and it's a. Um, and then after the meal, there's uh, in, you know it's intended to be take a long time. You're not rushing off to anywhere, and um, and then there's some more singing, and then there's the grace at the blessings after the meal. Um, and that's on Friday night. And then on Saturday, you go to the synagogue in the morning, and then there's um, the, uh, another meal around you know, noontime, and typically you, typically you invite guests. And, 
And so, I mean, it's a communal thing as well as a family thing. Mm-hmm. And it's um, and it ultimately ends with Havdalah on Saturday night, which is this wonderful ceremony in which you have this braided candle and incense and um, and wine and you know and you sing together also um, in terms of ending the Sabbath and going back to the weekday. So um, that, and then also the various holidays of the Jewish tradition are very family centered, very home centered. Is um, also is it is it right that 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 lovemaking is also encouraged on the Sabbath yes. or even commanded? Yes, that's why scholars have to, when they do it once a week are supposed to do it on Friday night. But you right. know, and that sounds. I don't know how that sounds, but the truth is that the way people live now with two jobs and, as you say, every minute of every day is packed. Right. I think that's probably a good discipline for a modern (laughs) marriage. That's exactly right. (laughs) A a discipline that a modern marriage might need. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And, you know, and, and, um, and it, it has a lot of symbolism also because the Sabbath is supposed to be sort of a reenactment of the Garden of Eden. And also a foretaste, the rabbis talk about this, is a foretaste of the world to come. So it's supposed to be this idyllic time in which you don't have to work for a living. Mm. All of that has been prepared ahead of time. Um, you're not allowed to cook on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. You're not, I mean, right, so nobody is harried and overburdened. Nobody's harried. In most traditional homes, they don't answer the phone on the Sabbath and things on that order, right? Yeah. Cell phone, whatever. Um, no computers, no no email, none of that, um, and you simply, you know, you simply talk to each other and you sing together and you catch up with each other and talk. And, and the, um, th- this ultimate sense of being completed um, comes both in terms of time together and in terms of sumptuous meals and in terms of time to take a nap on Saturday afternoon and to, and sex mm-hmm. between husband and wife, mm-hmm. which is part of the kind of consummation, really, of this sense of um, of unity and the, the idyllic time in which they are together. I mean, not that they may not have sex during the rest of the week. They certainly may, right, but, but, <laughs> but it has special symbolic value um, on Friday night. Mm. And so... Uh, I've wondered if this crisis in the American marriage that we talk about a lot is is not more a Christian crisis. Is there all is there a crisis in of Jewish marriage in this to the same proportion? Well, part of it uh, depends on what you mean by crisis. Right. One of the things. Well, I mean, that let's say this this divorce. that recent marriages of recent marriages fifty percent are ending in divorce. Right. Um, that didn't used to be the case um, a generation or so ago. Um, but as Jews have become more and more um, assimilated into the American environment, um, that now is uh, true for Jewish marriages as, uh, as much as it is for um, for uh, other American marriages. And um, and so one of the things that we have learned, we that is, I, I teach at the University of Judaism in Los Angeles, um, is that it is really critical to this? This, frankly, we have learned from the Catholics um, <laughs> that it is really critical to do preparation for marriage courses. And you have talked about this program that you have at the University of Judaism, this right. marriage preparation course. All right, is this right that it's been going for twenty-five years? And you have an eight percent divorce That's rate. That's right. They did. I mean, that is started incredible. In 19, it started in nineteen seventy-five. It was Rabbi Aaron Wise, um, who had been the rabbi of a large conservative synagogue in Los Angeles who retired, and together with Sylvia Weishaus, a psychologist in his congregation, created this program in 1975. And in 2000, they did a a survey of all of the people who had gone through the program, and uh, 8% had ultimately ended in divorce. So how do you explain that? Um, 
in some ways because when people go through, it's a 10-week program. It's, um, it's 10 couples together. Um, and they, um, uh, and sometimes during the course of the 10-week program, when, and because of the curriculum, which gets them to talk to each other about a variety of different important things, um, the, sometimes they decide, you know, maybe we shouldn't get married. Hmm. So some of it, which is much better for them to decide beforehand than afterward. Um, so some of it is that. But, but a lot of it has to do with um, the fact that they get skills through these, through these courses of, in terms of how to interact with each other. I mean, the first, uh, it's ten sessions, I think it's the first five, are um, deal with uh, communication skills. Um, and they're asked to... And, and they, they come to, to talk about with each other and then in a group about strategies um, to deal with parents, uh, strategies okay. to deal with friends of one who are not friends of the other, um, mm-hmm. issues of jobs versus children and how to handle them. Um, question, well, one really important one is how do you have a fight and still come out married? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, and because human, I mean, the couple will still be individual human beings, right? Yeah. And they may be in love, but it's, but it's, and part of it has to do also with expectations. Um, the way that I like, I, I love Broadway musicals, so the way that I like to put it is this, right? The, the Hollywood image of marriage is from South Pacific. Some enchanted evening, you will meet a stranger across the crowded room, and you'll know even then that somehow you'll meet her again and again, right? Yeah. And so the image that you get is that marriage is a series of enchanted evenings. And then when you get married and you find out that indeed there are some enchanted evenings, but most of them are sort of ho-hum, and some of them are downright unenchanted, you begin to think that if that was your expectation, you begin to think, well, maybe this is not the marriage for me, and you break up over that, right? As opposed to feather on the roof, right? After 25 years, do you love me? Well, for 25 years, we've done this, that, and that, and, and now you ask me, do I love you? Well, I suppose I do, and I suppose I love you too. After 25 years, it doesn't change a thing, but it's nice to know, yeah. right? Now, yeah. now there, I mean, what that bespeaks is, I think, the traditional Jewish understanding of marriage. That is, you get married um, primarily because you, uh, you like each other enough to do, the, to do the work of family together. That is, to, to grow old together, to have companionship, to have children, to raise those children um, my own my own grandmother, my mother's mother, was uh, had an arranged marriage, um, and my mother once asked her, and they had my mother asked her why she married my grandfather, and she said, well, because I had heard he was a kind man, and that was mm. enough for me, and they had an idyllic marriage. That's I mean, a they pretty were good really, reason to be married, someone. Yes, to someone, exactly actually. right. Well, when you think about these practical skills of communication and knowing how to fight, um, uh, do you need? Is that also something that you think about theologically? I mean, those are things we've learned in modern times about what makes a good modern marriage. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm wondering, you know, if the tradition also expanded on this notion of companionship in ways that that oh, mirror sure. that. Yes, oh, very much so. You know, there, beyond there's... the sexual, we talked about that, oh, but, yes. the, but oh. this, uh, the full larger idea of what companionship means. Absolutely. There's, um, there are passages, most of these... Some of these actually get into Jewish law, but but much of it is in in the midrashic literature. Um, there are passages in, um, in in Jewish literature which talk about how a man is supposed to to try to be very sensitive to his wife's moods. Um, That's he's, supposed good to advice. Hon- he's supposed to honor his wife more than himself. 
Um, there are um, there are even manuals that were written in the Middle Ages about how a man is supposed to uh, treat his wife and um, and others having to do with sexual activity um, about you know how to make sure that it's pleasurable for her as well as for him. Mm. Um, there are um, I, I mean it, it, there there are a series of other things. I mean of course I mean Jewish marriages were to some extent in, influenced by the marriages of the cultures in which they lived. Um, so. So things having to so the relationships between husbands and wives, you know, living in in Muslim countries were to some extent influenced by Islam, Islamic practices, and in Northern European countries by Christian practices. But but you but throughout the tradition you get you get love poetry. I mean, see, Song of Songs yes. is, is a book in the Bible, yes. right, which is simply love poetry. And even though Rabbi Akiva later interpreted it as the love poem between God and the people Israel. Uh, nevertheless, if you simply look, I mean, I'm sure he understood that, as, as everyone else does, that it's just simply love poetry that is, frankly, very graphic. Um, and, and is is it a, a marital uh, describing marital love? Some of it is, and some of it is not. I mm-hmm. mean, some of it is, some of it is courting, um, yes. talking about, you know, and, and 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 it's not at all afraid about talking about the. Um, the desirous nature of the body yeah. of the opposite sex, and it's um, in both directions, by the way. And it's because uh, there are some of the poems that are written by women and some of them written by men, um, and that got into our holy scriptures, right? So, I mean, if you have Song of Songs there, um, it's clear that the tradition, the Jewish tradition, is not taking a negative view of the body, or mm-hmm. um, and, and sees that as all part of of the kind of companionship that has to exist. But, but, the, but interestingly, along the lines that you were just asking about, in the, in the wedding ceremony, the only, the, the only um, description of the couple themselves is as re'im ha'ahuvim, the loving companions, where loving is the adjective, but companions is the noun, right? So they are, they are first right. and foremost companions, right. and then afterward, lovers. Um, and so the the issue is to, uh, I mean, obviously simultaneously lovers too. But the point is that that the companionship will last throughout their marriage, you know, even as the hormones decrease. I mean, the tradition doesn't know about hormones, but but you know, but even as the hormones decrease and and sex is less a part of their companionship, nevertheless, the um, the, the the whole point of a really strong marriage is that you share all kinds of things together. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily everything. You're still individuals, right? But um, and there can be a girls' night out or a boys' night out or whatever, and there can be some things that you only share with, you know, your friends of the same sex. But the uh, but on the other, but there are a lot of other things that you share with your mate, um, which which goes from I mean, it varies from couple to couple. Obviously, I mean, it can range from from movies to books to skiing to whatever it is that you like to do together. Um, and it's, um, but those are the kinds of things that really build, a, you know, a, as well as the common work in regard to children, to which, is, children yeah. which is the other commandment in the tradition. Right. Um, I want to ask you one thing before we get to children. Um, okay. that, the word help meet that, you know, mm-hmm. has become sort of a cliche, I think, help meet, help meet. Yes. Isn't that a very interesting word in the Hebrew that has a lot more complexity? Yes, what is, it does. What, yeah. what does that uh, connote? Well, the word is, uh, I mean, they're frankly a, a serious series of different... And that's in Genesis. That's in Genesis, mm-hmm. that's correct. Uh, this is the second chapter of Genesis mm-hmm. in which um, man is alone, Adam is alone, and he um, and feels lonely. Um, and, the, um, and then 
Eve is, is uh, created as Azer Kenegdo. And both, both of the Hebrew words are subject to a lot of interpretation. Um, first of all, a, the word La'azor means to help. Um, but then the word Kenegdo means literally opposite him. Right. Um, and, the, and so the question then becomes, um, but it, al- it also can mean on a par with him. So as much as she is a help to him, he is a help to her, right? So it could be, I mean, it could be, be understood in an egalitarian kind of way. Mm-hmm. It's usually not understood that way. It's usually understood as the woman being the help to the man. But opposite, but, isn't, doesn't that also imply the tension that we know between men and women in marriage, which it sort of acknowledges also as a constructive thing? Or right, right, exactly. And there are, um, the, the tradition recognizes the... Um, the fact that men and women are different. I mean, mm-hmm. it has some of that, of course, comes out of certain stereotypical roles that the uh, for husbands and for wives that the tradition creates. And as a matter of fact, the um, when it comes down to, um, to to duties, the the Talmud spells out what the duties are of a man toward his wife and of a woman toward her husband. And and I think the important thing to to note there is that it's not just in one direction. I mean, the man has it's not just that the woman has duties to her husband. It's it's quite the opposite. It's it's if anything, the marriage contract that that we use all talks about all the duties that the man has to his wife, not the other way around. Hmm. Um, and so, if anything, the emphasis in the tradition is on the husband's duties to the wife rather than the other way around. Um, and it's a and what the rabbis try to do for the, what the Torah itself tries to do is to um, is to take an inherently unequal situation in the ancient world and to to make it more equal. Um, so hence the, the, the verse in Exodus 21 that I was just mentioning before, or the fact that if there's going to be a, a if there's going to be a divorce and the tradition allows divorce, it sees yes. it sees divorce as as a sad thing, but not as a sin. Um, and so it's clearly not something that one should do flippantly. But but on the other hand, sometimes divorce is what really, you know, what is necessary. And I mean, do you think that you know, in some ways you, that might be surprising because marriage is so highly valued, but right. on the other hand, because marriage is is described in a complex way, is is is, yes. that, is the allowance of divorce also an acknowledgement That's of right. that? It basically, um, uh, I team teach a course at the law school at UCLA in Jewish law as a legal system, and my partner and I, Arthur Rosette, and I have written a book together called The Living Tree, The Roots and Growth of Jewish Law. And in the first part, we talk about eye for an eye and how that, that develops over time. But in the second part, we talk about marriage and divorce. And when we talk about marriage, we talk about the three elements of Jewish marriage. There's the contractual element of Jewish marriage. There's the social element of Jewish marriage. And then there's the sacred element of Jewish marriage. And the fact that it is literally complex, as you said, uh, it has all three of these elements, means that different parts of the element uh, of the marriage can be called on for different purposes within the marriage. In the case of divorce, it's the contractual element, right? So long before modern, modern uh, divorce law came into being in the 1970s in America, uh, the Jewish tradition did not see it. Uh, see, in, in American law until the 1970s, except in Nevada, if you wanted to get married and get divorced, you had to show either adultery or insanity in your partner. That's why... Governor Nelson Rockefeller in 1968 had to go to had to fly to Nevada to divorce his wife because he wasn't willing to say that she was insane or adulterous. Mm. Um, but the in the Jewish tradition, 
um, this goes back to the to the rabbis. Uh, there don't have to be any grounds for divorce. It can simply be incom- what we would call incompatibility. They don't like each other anymore, and and so they may divorce. Um, the tradition did what it could to try to delay the process, so to try to get them to reconcile, but. Um, because they understood that that came, that divorce comes at a great cost to both partners, and certainly to a great a great cost to the children, the children if there yeah. are. Um, and so you don't do this lightly. But it's, a, but at the same time, if you decide if this is the right and proper thing to do, then you don't have to show that. You don't have to demonstrate that to any rabbis or a court or anything like that. The court only supervises the process. Um, so. And that's all because, and, 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 and we were talking about protections for the woman, the uh, Deuteronomy 24 says that the man has to give her a writ, which, a writ of divorce, which you might say, well, isn't that obvious? But it's not obvious because in other countries, uh, other cultures in the world, the man just says, get out of here. Or I divorce you, right? Or you I divorce you. Uh-huh. That's right. And uh-huh. then the woman has no proof that she's been divorced, so it's very hard for her to remarry, yeah. whereas the Bible already says that the man has to give her a writ. And then in, in rabbinic literature, um, the, um, the, the, what they did, what the rabbis did was to create this wedding contract, um, which, uh, and, and then, which, which includes a certain number of obligations that the man has toward his wife. Like, for example, in addition to the biblical rights, food, clothing, and conjugal rights, which the rabbis understood to mean food, clothing, included housing, and, and her rights to sex. In addition to those, uh, the rabbis added things like her medical care. Um, he, has to, um, he has to redeem her from captivity. Um, he has uh, obligations toward her children by a previous marriage, if there are any, um, and so on down the line. And then they go one step further and say, this is in the Mishnah already, even if he didn't write her a ketubah, and they were married in a common law sort of way, af- you know, after the fact, by, sim- by having sex together, um, for purposes of marriage, all of the conditions, those are conditions of the court. In other words, they are not, they're, they're not open to, um, to abrogation um, by the man alone. The, the, the man becomes responsible for them um, at the time of marriage, no matter how the marriage is ultimately uh, celebrated. And so it's a, um, so the rabbis really went much, much further in trying to, to equalize her status you know, within the marriage, and that's 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you've said that, that while it's allowed and, and, and allowed for in these practical ways, it's also seen as a cause, uh, as an occasion of deep regret divorce, and yes. sadness and, and grief. And, and I wonder also, does, the, um, does Jewish ritual also uh, make a place for that sadness to be expressed? Yeah, there is... Um, well, the, the traditional divorce rituals um, already have a um, part. What happens is is that the, that a uh, the divorce writ has to be written specifically for this couple. That's one of the ways in which the rabbis delayed the process in hopes of making sure that they you know making sure that they really needed to be divorced. Um, as opposed to a wedding document, which a doesn't have to be written altogether, post facto, but b can be uh, now it can be mass produced, um, you know, and and that's perfectly fine. Um, but the, the divorce document has to be written specifically for them, and then once it is, then there's this ceremony in which the man um, gives it to the woman, 
um, or her agent. They don't, they don't have to be together in order for this to do this. Sometimes it's too painful for the couple to do. And so they, they can do it through agents if they need to. But if they are there and doing it together, then the man gives the document to the woman who takes it in cupped hands and then walks with it for several steps to indicate you know, graphically that what's happening is that the two of them are leaving each other. Um, and in our own time, um, there have been a number of other rituals that people have devised to to talk about the grief that that men and women have in marriage. It's mm-hmm. much um, just because of the way that Anglo-Saxons are sort of created in our country. Um, the it's much harder for men to express that kind of grief, that grief than yeah. than it is for women. And so one of the things that's that's been sort of interesting is. Um, men's support groups as well as women's support groups and mm-hmm. this kind of thing. It's very hard to get men to come to those kinds of support groups, truthfully, mm-hmm. um, because the way that men are acculturated to American society is uh, that they're not supposed to show their feelings, which, which is frankly crazy um, mm-hmm. and, and certainly not helpful for anyone. Um, and so uh, I'm on the board of Jewish Family Service in Los Angeles, and one of the things that we run is a men's support group after divorce. After divorce. Right. Um, so I, should we go I on need to, to children? Not, well, I, I actually, I'm not sure I want to get into children. I know that's important to you. Right. I, I mean, it's important to say, to let you say okay. that children, that children are really important in the Jewish tradition. They mm-hmm. are, uh, um, they are, it's not only a commandment according the way that the rabbis understood the commandment of being fruitful and multiplying is that you only, that you only fulfill it once you've had both a girl and a boy. So you could have ten girls that's or ten a tall boys. Order. <laughs> yes, that's right, and still not have fulfilled it. But um, and you should, you're supposed to have a minimum of two children um, and more if you possibly can. Um, and you know, granted that that was at a time in which if you wanted two or three children to survive to adulthood, you had to have six or seven or more. Um, but but in our own day, um, whereas that's not the case in our own day, right? In other words, if a child is born chances are pretty good that the child will make it to adulthood. Um, the, uh, nevertheless, we are, we are in a major demographic, we Jews are in a major demographic crisis in that we're not even reproducing ourselves as a people. I mean, to do that, you need a 2.1 reproductive rate, and ours is something like 1.7 or 1.8. Um, and, I, I mean, I'm a rabbi, I understand that if you have somebody who is born Jewish, you have to do an awful lot of work in order to uh, make that person a knowledgeable and practicing Jew, but you can't educate somebody who isn't there. Um, so from my perspective, the primary commandment by none in our day um, is uh, being fruitful and multiplying. Okay. Um, and, and I mean, I know that, that a lot of Jews have been on the sort of the zero population bandwagon um, for since the 1960s. Um, and and that is important. I mean, uh, the world does indeed have an overpopulation problem, um, but um, but the, the Jewish community, the whole worldwide Jewish community, is one quarter of one percent of the world's population. So even if God forbid the entire Jewish community were wiped off the map tomorrow, it would be only a blip in the graph mm. of of the world's overpopulation problem. If you're really worried about that, then. Well, you get the Pope to change his mind about contraception. I mean, Catholics are one quarter of the world's population. 
uh, about artificial uh, uh, birth control, and you uh, and you get um, things like the birth control patch to be available in places like Africa and South America and India. Right, right. I mean, you have to do what you can do where you are. Yes, in that, your community. that may well be, but mm-hmm. the, but I mean, if you're really worried about that, then that's yeah. what you need to do. You don't want to cut right. off the Jewish people from right. the rest of, of, of uh, you know the rest of history. Right. Um, so. Um, so it's really important for, um, you know, for Jews to, um, first of all, to go to colleges in which there are a lot of other Jews so that they might meet one to marry. Mm-hmm. It's important to, and if they find one, to marry and to begin to have children while in graduate school because the, the, the um, pressures of the first years on one's job are no less than the pressures of graduate school. If anything, they're more. Um, and besides that, Jews suffer from a lot of infertility problems because we postpone, we, we go in very large percentages to college and graduate school. Because they're overeducated. Overeducated. <laughs> creates infertility. Exactly right. As a matter of fact, a friend of, of mine age, once said right? that, uh-huh. a friend of mine once said that the most effective form of birth control is a college education. Huh. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, well, you know, here's, here's, I, I, here's something I'd like to ask you before we go, mm-hmm. um, you are a rabbi, and you have four adult children. Right. And I'm I'm wondering, as you watch them be adults in our time, uh, how do you? What are some of the ways that you see them struggling with this tradition, particularly of marriage and divorce uh, in Judaism? And and what are some of the ways that their struggles bring you back to to reconsider the tradition? Um. Well. Um, first of all, um, my younger two children were the first to ma- well, okay, l- let me answer your question in a variety of different ways. Okay. Um, my own family is in some ways really, um, statistically, I think fairly typical of, um, of, uh, other families. I have, um, a daughter and a son who got married, um, and married people who were very much part of the community and the like. I have a son who married somebody who was part of the, the Jewish community, but they got divorced two and a half years later. And then about seven years after that, uh, he married a Jew by choice. Um, that is somebody who, a woman who, who converted, converted to, to Judaism, Judaism okay. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a daughter uh, who came out as a lesbian and uh, was just recently artificially inseminated and gave us our first grandson about two months ago. Yeah. So you have so, a modern family. I have a modern family. Mm-hmm. That's indeed true. And um, and I do think that gays and lesbians, as well as straights, should try to help us with our demographic problems. Um, and I do think that they can be uh, good parents as, as well as straights. I do think that mothers and fathers are different, so that if you're talking about a single mom or a single dad or two gay men or two lesbian women raising a child, that, that it's important to bring in... Um, somebody of the opposite sex who takes a, um, a, a major role in the okay. uh, development of the child. So I'm very much interested in things like Jewish big brothers and Jewish big sisters as as ways of supplementing um, the development of children in a single sex um, mm-hmm. parental home. Um, but other than that, um, I mean, it seems to me that gays can be just as much, uh, just as good parents as straights can be. Um, so that so that's interesting because this command to have children to be fruitful and multiply we definitely think of as as the a man and woman a husband and wife and and you see that command being followed and carried out by your daughter who's lesbian right yeah exactly. with modern methods 
and by my other daughter and son-in-law, who are a heterosexual couple. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... Um, uh, and I think... I, I do a lot of bioethics. I think um, infertility is... Um, is something is a well? It's something that Genesis knows an awful lot about. Um, yes, Sarah. You know, Sarah and Abraham yeah. had trouble having children, and and uh, Rebecca has trouble having children, and then gives yeah. birth to twins. And Rachel has trouble having children, and uses a surrogate mother, yeah. if you remember, for a while. Mm-hmm. And, and later there's Hannah. And, and then later there's whole, Hannah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So um, the tradition knows a lot about infertility. Problems. If you think about it, to have. The sacred scriptures of a tradition have so remarkable many. Remarkable how many barren women yes. there are in the. Exactly, which which means I think for us a that infertile couples should at least get some comfort from the fact that the tradition presumes that it's not so easy to have children, and b that children were seen and still are seen very much in the Jewish tradition, even when they come easily to a couple as a great blessing. It's not something to be taken for granted, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, there are all kinds of parental duties toward children, but but children are not only a duty. They are a, a great blessing. I must say that I loved being a father and raising the children. I took a very active role in the um, in parenting my uh, our children, and um, and truthfully, I had a very good model. My father did also, which in his generation was even mm-hmm. less common than than it was in mine. Um, and um, and I think that um, and now I look forward to grandparenthood. Um, yeah. And um, and I think that, that that one has to understand that, you know, whatever the tensions, and there are, and whatever the worries with children, and there are, um, the, the, the Jewish tradition certainly sees marriage and children as a very positive thing, as the way that God created us to, to live our lives, um, because it's in those relationships that, that we gain um, meaning and comfort and direction and... Uh, and a sense of support, a sense of rootedness, and also a sense of the future. I mean, this is the great chain of generations, as it were. Right. And, um, and, and how do you, you hold that together as, as the biblical norm, as an ideal, with the reality that divorce happens, that, that you have a daughter who will never marry a man? Right. Um, how do you reconcile that ideal, that norm, with these other realities? Which you also clearly, you don't judge. You're not condemning these no, other... No, not so, at all. I mean, so I how think, does it work? I mean, how are we supposed to take, live with those norms? Well, I think that the, um, the tradition very much prized marriage and saw that as the primary way to do it. Um, it also understood divorce and did not condemn it as a sin. It saw it as being something that you do only after a lot of consideration and, and every attempt to reconcile, but, but sometimes there was divorce. Um, it did not know about uh, single parents, except in the case of widowhood or divorce. Um, but And in the case of single parents, it tried to get them remarried as mm-hmm. quickly as possible. And interestingly, that uh, that continues on in the Jewish community. The, the, the rate of, even though the rate of divorce in, a, in, contemporary, in the contemporary Jewish community is more or less the same as it is in the general American population, the rate of remarriage in the Jewish community is far higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that continues on. Gays and lesbians, of course, out of the closet is a whole new phenomenon in our generation. Um, let alone they're having children, qua gays and lesbians, and that is a new phenomenon. But um, but I think it's it's frankly um, very very positive to um, to um, enable them to come out of the closet and to be 
honest and real about themselves. Um, and then I think that um, that they need to to help us with our um, our population problem, our demographic problem, just as much as straights do. Um, and I also think that it is. It's uh, it's not good for them to be alone any more than it's good for for straights to be alone, um, and and so I think we in the Jewish community need to create the matchmaker again. We, right? we need to create many more ways of Jews meeting each other, especially after college, when it becomes much harder to find a venue for people to meet each other. Um, I know that some of that is now computerized. There's J date, right? Which is, um, and I understood from one of the sessions uh, at this conference. There's now J moms in Boston, in which mothers of children in their late twenties get together and try to get their children connected in some way or another. But um, the matchmaker lives again. But the um, but the point is that it's. I mean, I think uh, I think that piece of it is something that that we have to do much more vigorously than we've done in the past, uh, and which our ancestors did uh, very naturally. In other words, to help people uh, find each other and, um, and live in the kind of companionship that the tradition wanted. It may not be exactly one marriage for the rest of your life, which may still be the ideal, but, but it, it may be more than one marriage, or it may be no marriage and, and, a, and a gay relationship. Um, but but I think that that ultimately the Bible was right. Uh, we are well. Aristotle also said social animals, right? We yeah. people who need people are the luckiest people <laughs> in the world, you know, Barbara Streisand or whatever. Um, it's uh, it, it's corny, but I think it's true. Namely, that that people really do need that kind of companionship, which is um, which is a, which is a more intense form of companionship than you have even with your closest friends. Mm-hmm. I think that's your last word. That's great. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I need to let you go. But Enough. That was wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.